First Baptist Melbourne podcast, making disciples here and everywhere for the glory of God. Father, we know that so often we do want to have it our way, but Lord, it is our heart's desire that you would have your way in us. And Father, you have called us to walk by faith and not by sight. We pray, Father, that you would, through your word, this morning, draw us, Lord, wherever we are, to deeper faith in you. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for how it speaks to our hearts, and we pray, Father, today that our hearts would be open to what you would say to us through your Holy Spirit, and we ask it in the name of Christ. Amen. Well, if you have your Bibles today, and I hope you do, do you open with me to the passage that was just read so well for us from 1 Samuel chapter 14. We took a break last week for uh, Easter weekend and our celebration of the Lord's resurrection. We're jumping uh, back in today to our study of the book of Samuel. And in the story that we're going to look at today, there is a sharp contrast between the two main characters in this story, King Saul and his son Jonathan. And while King Saul is driven by fear, Jonathan, the crown prince, is driven by his faith in the Lord. And really what Jonathan is in this story, his function in this story, is is something like a literary foil. Because in many ways his character is the opposite of King Saul. His character has so many shining Uh, admirable qualities about it. It really just serves to highlight even more uh, the spiritual deficiencies that we see in the character of Israel's king. And as we walk through this story, as we look at Saul and Jonathan's lives, we need to ask ourselves, which of these two characters are we more like? Uh, Do we have more of uh, the faith that we see in Jonathan the prince, or do we see more of the fear that we see in King Saul, his father. And actually, all together in this story, there are three pictures that we really need to see. And the first picture we need to see is that of the faith-filled champ, the faith-filled champion, Jonathan the prince. Before we can really understand the faith that Jonathan displays here, we need to understand kind of the setting, what's going on here in this story. Uh, in the chapter that we studied a couple of weeks ago, chapter 13, we, we read about a battle that is brewing here between God's people, Israel, and their enemies, the Philistines. And in this battle that is about to happen, humanly speaking, Israel is outmatched in every way. Uh, the Philistines have more people. 
the Philistines have chariots and charioteers. The Philistines, uh, apparently, it says at the end of chapter 13, they even had all the blacksmiths that were in that country. And so while they uh, were all outfitted with uh, swords and uh, all of the weapons that they needed, the Israelites didn't have any swords. In fact, only two uh, of the soldiers in Israel's army had swords, and that was Saul and his son Jonathan. And to make matters worse, uh, the, the soldiers in Saul's army could tell uh, that this was not going to be a fair fight. And so uh, we read in chapter 13 that many of them were deserting. Some of them were going over to the Philistine side. Some of them uh, were, were hiding in caves and holes in the ground and anywhere that they could find. And at this point in the story, all that Saul had left was a measly 600 men to go against the thousands of the Philistine soldiers who were arrayed in battle against him. And so that is the setting. That's what's going on when we read what Jonathan decides to do in verse 1 of chapter 14. Now it happened one day that Jonathan, the son of Saul, said to the young man who bore his armor, Come and let us go over to the Philistines' garrison that is on the other side. But he did not tell his father. Uh, again, Jonathan is a picture for us of a faith-filled champion. And so as we walk through uh, particularly his story in the first half of this chapter, I want us to notice some, some qualities about faith-filled people in general. There are qualities that, that show up in Jonathan's life, uh, but also there are qualities that I believe the Lord would want to show up in our lives today. And the first quality uh, that I see in Jonathan, that I see in faith-filled people, is this. They step out and they do something. They step out and they do something while others sit around and do nothing. Now, faith moves people to do something for the Lord. Uh, e even sometimes crazy things like what Jonathan does here. And again, notice the contrast with King Saul. Uh, verse 2, it says, Saul was sitting in the outskirts of Gibeah under a pomegranate tree. And so here is Saul uh, sitting around, doing nothing. Uh, and notice also who Saul is sitting with. Verse 3 says he was sitting around with Ahijah, who was the high priest at the time. But as you read on in his genealogy, you find out that he is the great-grandson of Eli, uh, who was the priest at the very beginning of the book of Samuel. And so, uh, it really, in a way, these two men go together. Uh, because here you have King Saul, who in the chapter right before this, chapter 13, King Saul was told, because of his sin against the Lord, uh, that his family would not continue to be the king after him. His sons and his grandsons would not get to be the king because of his disobedience. And here he is sitting with this man, this priest, who, whose family was told in the days of Eli, his great-grandfather, that their family would not get to continue to be the priest forever because of their sin against the Lord. And so here you have these two men whose families have both been rejected already by the Lord. And you get the feeling as you're reading this story, these two guys are not going to be able to be a whole lot of help uh, from Israel, for Israel. And these guys don't even realize that Jonathan and his armor bearer have, have snuck out of the camp. Uh, again, while they are sitting still, Jonathan's faith has him up and moving. 
Now, again, what he does may seem crazy to people. That's probably why it says he didn't tell his father what he was planning to do because he probably knew his dad would have tried to prevent him from doing it uh, because he and his armor bearer were about to take on the whole garrison of the Philistines by themselves. And the place where they decided to uh, make their attack was a place that many people would have considered to be impassable. Uh, Verse 4 tells us that there was a a pass running through and there was a sharp rock on one side and a sharp rock on the other. Uh, Really the idea is that there were two rocky cliffs. They would have had to climb straight down one rocky cliff and and then across the pass and up uh, straight up another rocky cliff. And they're so notorious that these cliffs even had names. Right, The name of one was Bozes and Sina in Hebrew which roughly translates in English to slippery and thorny. And so you get the idea that nobody in their right mind would have uh, tried to launch an attack at this particular spot where they would have to climb over these cliffs. But that doesn't phase Jonathan at all. He goes full-on Israelite ninja warrior on these guys, and he is climbing up cliffs and down cliffs, and we're going to see that the Lord blesses Jonathan in everything that he sets out to do. But again, for now, just notice that simple truth that while Saul is doing nothing, Jonathan did something. You know, Willie Taggart, uh, who is the head coach of uh, Florida State Seminoles, has a motto that he uses all the time, and the motto is, do something. A lot of times you will even see that on his tweets that he sends out. It'll end with a hashtag, do something. Uh, Now, as a Florida State fan who had to watch them uh, lose seven games last season, uh, I kind of wish that they would do something else, right? Hashtag do something else. Hashtag win. Uh, But with that said, uh, I still do like that motto, that, that idea of do something, because you know what? God is calling us to do something. Now, maybe you say, well, you know, I don't know exactly what God is calling me to do. I get the impression that Jonathan didn't know exactly what God was calling him to do here, don't you? Kind of get the impression that he was stepping out in faith. He was kind of making this up as he went along. But as he got there, the Lord began to show him the specifics of what it was that he was supposed to do. Listen, God may not give you and me all the specifics. He may not let us read the full game plan before he calls us to step out in faith. Very seldom. Does he allow us to see everything that's going to take place? But if he's called you to step out in faith, and friend, you better better do it, right? You better step out and trust that he will show you. And the truth is, we already know a lot of the things that God has called us to do. God has called us to love people, right? And so let's do something. Let's love somebody, God has called us to serve people, so let's do something. Let's serve people. God has called us to tell people about Jesus, so let's do something. Let's tell somebody about Jesus. Let's not sit around and do nothing. Let's allow our faith to prompt us to do something like what Jonathan does here. You know, a second quality I see in faith-filled people is that they believe that God can do anything that he wants to do no matter the circumstances. God can do anything that he wants to do, no matter the circumstances. I think the key verse in this whole chapter is verse 6. This is what Jonathan says to his armor bearer. He said, Come, 
and let us go over to the garrison of these uncircumcised. It may be that the Lord will work for us, for nothing restrains the Lord from saving by many or by few. You know, there is a difference between optimism and faith. A lot of people can be optimistic about their chances when their circumstances are good. You know, they look around them and they say, you know, this, this looks pretty good. I like my chances here. I'm pretty optimistic about that. But faith is entirely different. Jonathan's faith was the kind of faith that moved on ahead even when the circumstances didn't look good. And the circumstances certainly didn't look good here, right? This was two guys who had to climb up two steep cliffs in order to go against a whole army. From the outside looking on, I mean, let's just be honest, this looked like a suicide mission. There, there was nothing about the circumstances that Jonathan was in that would make you stop and say, you know what, I feel pretty good about this. Right? This seems like this is going to work out well, right? There's nothing about it that would give you that impression, but Jonathan had faith. And his faith shows up in several of the things that he says here uh, in verse 6. It shows up even when he refers to the Philistines as the uncircumcised. Because circumcision was something that God had given to Abraham years before. It was a sign of the covenant, of the covenant people of God. And so when he refers to the Philistines as uncircumcised, there's a really a lot that is in that comment. What he's saying is that, that he and his armor bearer were a part of the covenant people of God, and the Philistines were not, and the Philistines were the enemies of the covenant people of God. And so he knows that it very well may be that God may fight along with us. But I also see his faith particularly in what he says, the last phrase of that verse, for nothing restrains the Lord. Nothing prevents him. Nothing holds the Lord back from saving by many people or from saving by just a few. In other words, in Jonathan's mind, it didn't matter if he was outnumbered a million to one. Because God can save. He can save with thousands if he chooses. Or he can save with just one or two. You know, what he says here really reminds me of the story of Gideon in the book of Judges. There's a lot of parallels to the story of Gideon in this, in this story. The enemy of God's people at that time was the Midianites. And at first, Gideon had 32,000 soldiers who wanted to fight with him against the Midianites. And if you remember that story, God actually said, Gideon, you've got too many people with you. You've got too many soldiers. You've got you to scale this thing back. And so he has Gideon actually pass all these thousands of soldiers through a sequence of tests to really whittle the army down to only 300 people in order to go to battle against the Midianites. So on that occasion, God didn't want to save by many. God actually wanted to save by few. And he wanted to save by few so that his people would know that it was God who saved them. And they didn't save themselves. And maybe Jonathan was thinking about Gideon that day as he lay on his face with his armor bearer by his side, peeking over the edge of that cliff. And as they talked about what they were going to do next, and he spoke those great words of faith, nothing stops the Lord from saving by many or saving by few. I think that he would have agreed with what John Knox would say many centuries after this, John Knox said this, one man with God is always in the majority. 
One man with God is always in the majority. That's what Jonathan believed. I guess the question for us is, is that what we believe? And do we live like we believe that? And no matter what the circumstances are in our life, no matter what we're up against, no matter how overwhelming it may seem, if God is with us, then we're in the majority. And we can press on with faith. Here's the other thing I see about faith-filled people in Jonathan's words in verse 6. Number three, they trust what God can do, but they don't presume to tell God what he must do. They trust what God can do, but they don't presume to tell God what he must do. I think some key words in verse 6 are the words, it may be. It may be that the Lord will fight for us. Other translations use the word perhaps. It, it may be, it, it, it could perhaps be that the Lord will work for us, or perhaps he won't. You know, one commentator pointed out that some people are critical of other believers who use the word perhaps. And they see it as a sign of the weakness of their faith. If they use the word perhaps, or if they say, if the Lord wills in their prayers, and, and, and yet... Uh, what I would say to that is that very seldom, again, does God show us the entire plan. Very seldom does God in advance show us what he is precisely going to do in a given situation. And so unless it's something that we already have a promise about in his word, then oftentimes we don't know what the Lord is going to do. And so perhaps, the word perhaps, is actually a big part of our faith. Because God is not our errand boy. We don't get to dictate to the almighty God of heaven and earth what he has to do. He is the sovereign king. And he does what he pleases in heaven. And he does what he pleases on earth. And so we don't dictate to him. But we believe that he can do anything that he wants. And we make ourselves available to him and we pray and we ask him to move on our behalf. And then we trust that he will do what is ultimately best both for us and for the kingdom that he is building. That's what Jonathan did. He boldly stated his faith in the Lord that he could save Israel. That he could save Israel even if he just used the two of them if he wanted to. And then he let God decide whether it was his good pleasure to do that on that specific day. And you know, that showed his faith as much as anything else. And after Jonathan said those words of faith to his armor bearer, look again at what his armor bearer said back to him in verse 7. So his armor bearer said to him, Do all that is in your heart. Go then, here I am with you according to your heart. You know, here's another quality about faith-filled people and faith-filled leaders. They attract other daring, faith-filled followers. I mean, you can just hear it in the verse here, the armor bearer, what, what, what he's ready to do. He's ready to follow Jonathan anywhere he goes. He said to him, do everything that is in your heart, Jonathan. I am with you. I am with you, heart, mind, and soul. You know, of course, the armor bearer was risking his life every bit as much as Jonathan was risking his. And yet he says, I'm with you, heart and soul. Go on ahead with it. And I think that's because he sees the faith that is in Jonathan. And he's drawn to that kind 
of daring faith. And it's still that way today. People today are still drawn to believers who have a daring faith in the Lord, who are willing to risk something for the Lord. And you know what? We all need people around us, like the armor bearer who was around Jonathan. You know, I am so thankful for my wife, Megan, who I know is with me, heart and soul. I know if I told her, if I told her tomorrow that God had called us to go to China for the sake of the gospel, she'd be ready to go. Because she's with me, heart and soul. I'm thankful for the pastors of this church who are with me, heart and soul. Uh, no matter what harebrained idea I feel that the Lord has uh, given to me, uh, whether it was years ago when uh, we decided to have a 15-day-long revival, day after day after day, for three straight weeks, and yet they were with me. Even uh, when the Lord has given us this dream of planting a church every year, I'm sure they thought the same thing that I thought. That is crazy. How in the world are we ever going to do that? And yet they said, yeah, that sounds good. Let's, let's go for it. Now, now listen, is, is there a place for wisdom? Absolutely. Is there a place for another believer who comes to you and, and you feel that they really have not sought the Lord about the direction that they're about to head out in and you really feel that they're about to do something foolish that can not only harm themselves but harm other people around them and so someone needs to speak some sense into them in love? Does that ever happen? Of course it happens. But with that said, when you can, be someone who fights for other people's dreams. You know, there are enough dream killers out there in the world today. Be someone who fights for other believers' passions. Be someone who believes in others, who believes in the Lord in others, who fights by their side. Because we all need armor bearers in our life, like Jonathan had. And you know what? We all need to be armor bearers in the life of the people who are around us. Well, what happens next in this story? Well, once Jonathan and his armor bearer decide to move forward on this raid, somewhat like Gideon did with his fleece, uh, Jonathan uh, has a little test here. His plan was to show themselves uh, to the enemy, and uh, based on what the enemy said to them, they would know whether the Lord was with them. If they said, stay where you are, uh, then they would stay. But if the enemy said, well, come on up to us, then they would take that as a sign that the Lord was with them. And so they went ahead with that plan. They showed themselves to the enemy. Uh, the enemy uh, thought that uh, they were some of the people who had hidden in the holes in the ground and they were just coming out to surrender themselves uh, to the Philistines. And so they said, come on up to us. And they kind of mocked them. They said, come on up to us and we'll show you something, meaning we'll teach you a lesson once you get up here. And they probably didn't even think they would make it up the cliff. You know, I just imagine they probably went back to playing cards, right? Because they couldn't see Jonathan and his armor bearer as they started up the face of that rocky cliff up to the top. And they certainly didn't expect that even if they made it to the top that these two guys are about to wage war against the entire garrison. That was probably the last thing in their mind. And yet when Jonathan and his armor bearer got to the top, he took the sword in his hand, one of the only swords they had in all of Israel, right? And he began to chop them down one after one. They fell to the ground behind him. And then as his armor bearer came behind him, his armor bearer would finish them off. And all together there were 20 Philistines that Jonathan and his armor bearer struck down that day 
As one commentator put it, those were 20 Philistines who would never teach an Israelite another lesson again. Verse 15 says there was trembling, a trembling that was sent by the Lord. The ground began to shake, and the panic that was already starting to set in because of the 20 soldiers who had died was beginning to get worse. There was a great confusion, and victory was on the way. And here's one more quality about faith-filled people both then and now. They experience triumphs that the faithless will never get to experience. Jonathan got to experience firsthand the victory that day in a way that his faithless father did not get to experience. Because Jonathan believed that the Lord could save with many or the Lord could save with few, he got to be one of the few. He got to be one of the two who was there on the very front row to see the beginning of this great victory. And it's no different today. You know, I've always loved this verse in 2 Chronicles 16 that says this, For the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose heart is loyal to him. And I believe that still today, God is looking for people with a heart like Jonathan's, people who have that kind of faith, that that when he finds those kind of people, he goes to war for them. And he wants to show himself strong on their behalf. And so the question is, friends, when when God is, is looking to and fro, when his eyes are scanning to and fro, even right here in Melbourne, Florida, does his eyes fall on you? Would his eyes fall on you and find in you a heart that is loyal to him? Would his eyes find in you someone who believes in him? Someone who could say with Jonathan, I know my God can save. I know my God can do anything. Whether it's by many or whether it's by few, I believe in the power of my almighty God. Do you have that kind of faith? I pray the Lord would find that kind of faith in my heart and in your heart and in this church. Yes, those who are faith-filled like Jonathan get to experience triumphs that the faithless never get to experience. And you can see in the next few verses how the story of the victory of the Philistines played out. Saul's watchmen saw all the commotion that was going on in the Philistine camp. Saul realized it was probably someone from his camp uh, that had caused it. And so he does a roll call and realizes for the very first time that Jonathan was missing. And so he wants to go and join the battle. He can see the Philistines are in turmoil, and he wants to join the battle. But he thinks, well, I probably should check with the Lord first to see if I should do that. And so we're told that the ark was there and that the priest, we already know the priest was there. And so he's asking the priest basically to cast lots uh, before the ark to tell him whether it's a yes or a no, whether he should go or whether he should not go. But then it's almost comical because uh, Saul begins to get impatient, right? You can imagine him. He's pacing back and forth, right? And he's waiting, and the battle's happening over there. And basically, the priest is taking too long. And so he tells the priest in verse 19 to withdraw his hand. Basically, he says, stop what you're doing, right? Stop inquiring of the Lord. I don't have time for this. And he decides he's going to go on to the battle anyway. And there's a lot to criticize there. But in spite of Saul's leadership failures on this particular day, nothing was going to stop the Lord from giving this victory to his people. And they won big time. 
In verses 21 and 22, we find out that the people who had deserted before started coming back when they saw that the tide was turning. And people who were hiding in holes in the ground started crawling out of their holes and rejoined Saul's army, and the Philistines were running for their lives. And verse 23 sums up what happened in the victory. So the Lord saved Israel that day. Yes, Jonathan was heroic. Yes, the other soldiers fought well. But in the end, it was the Lord who saved Israel from their enemies. And I wish for Saul's sake that that is where the story ends. But unfortunately, it doesn't. Because somehow on this day that God had given him a great victory, Saul manages to lose all credibility with his army. Let's read the rest of the story starting in verse 24. And the men of Israel were distressed that day, for Saul had placed the people under oath, saying, Cursed is the man who eats any food until evening, before I have taken vengeance on my enemies. So none of the people tasted food. Now all the people of the land came to a forest, and there was honey on the ground. And when the people had come into the woods, there was the honey dripping, but no one put his hand to his mouth, for the people feared the oath. But Jonathan had not heard his father charge the people with the oath. Therefore, he stretched out the end of his rod that was in his hand and dipped it in the honeycomb and put his hand to his mouth and his countenance, his face brightened. And then one of the people said, your father strictly charged the people with an oath, saying, cursed is the man who eats food this day. And the people were faint. But Jonathan said, my father has troubled the land. Look now how my countenance has brightened because I tasted a little of this honey. How much better if the people had eaten freely today of the spoil of their enemies, which they found. For now, would there not have been a much greater slaughter among the Philistines? Now they had driven back the Philistines that day from Michmash to Ajalon, so the people were faint. And the people rushed on the spoil and took sheep, oxen, and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood." And then they told Saul, saying, Look, the people are sinning against the Lord by eating with the blood. And so he said, You have dealt treacherously. Roll a large stone to me this day. And Saul said, Disperse yourselves among the people and say to them, Bring me here every man's ox, every man's sheep. Slaughter them here and eat. Do not sin against the Lord by eating with the blood. So every one of the people brought his ox with him that night and slaughtered it there. And then Saul built an altar to the Lord. This was the first altar that he had built to the Lord. Now Saul said, let us go down after the Philistines by night and plunder them until the morning light. And let us not leave a man of them. And they said, do whatever seems good to you. Then the priest said, let us draw near to God here. So Saul asked counsel of God, shall I go down after the Philistines? Will you deliver them into the hand of Israel? But he did not answer him that day. And Saul said, come over here, all you chiefs of the people, and know and see what this sin was today. For as the Lord lives, who saves Israel, though it be in Jonathan my son, he shall surely die. But not a man among all the people answered him. Then he said to all Israel, you be on one side, and my son Jonathan and I will be on the other side. And the people said to Saul, do what seems good to you. Therefore Saul said to the Lord God of Israel, give a perfect lot. So Saul and Jonathan were taken, but the people escaped. And Saul said, cast lots between my son Jonathan and me. So Jonathan was taken. Then Saul said to Jonathan, tell me what you've done. And Jonathan told him and said, I only tasted a little honey with the end of the rod that was in my hand. So now I must die. Saul answered, God, do so and more also, for you shall surely die, Jonathan. But the people said to Saul, shall Jonathan die, who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground, for he has worked with God this day. So the people rescued Jonathan. And he did not die. 
And then Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, and the Philistines went to their own place. And so we have looked at uh, the picture of the faith-filled champ, and now let's take a few minutes and talk about the fear-filled chump. The fear-filled chump. Now, I hope it doesn't offend you that I call Saul a chump here, but you know chump is another name for a foolish person, and that really is what Saul is in this chapter. He acts foolishly here on a number of different occasions, and, and really this is just another step downward in the downward progression of King Saul in this book. And King Saul is a tragic character. He's already lost out on uh, the dynasty in the last chapter. Here, again, he loses all credibility in front of his men, his soldiers. And in the next chapter that we will see next week, uh, the Lord rejects him as king outright. It's amazing that you go from verse 23 where it says, The Lord saved Israel that day. And then you go to the next verse, verse 24, and it says, And the men of Israel were distressed that day. Now, how could that be? Right? How could the men of Israel be distressed on the very same day that God had given them this great victory? Well, it could be because of what the next part of the verse tells us, because of Saul. Because Saul, their king, had put them under an oath uh, that they were not allowed to eat anything that whole day. And uh, really, when you just strip it all away, this was just a dumb thing to do. Now, fasting in general is a good thing to do. But fasting when you're in the middle of a war is not such a bright idea. It's hard to fight on an empty stomach. And, and yet Saul does this. And we can think about what the different motives might have been for him doing this. We'll talk about that in a minute. But the results were disastrous of Saul making this foolish oath. First of all, Jonathan, who had already left on his commando mission uh, before Saul even said this, never heard his dad say this. And so later in the day, when he's walking through the woods with the other soldiers, and they see a honeycomb up in the tree, and the honey is just dripping down to the ground, and, and really, let's just be honest, is there anything better than honey? I mean, fresh honey like that? I mean, who can resist that? Right? And so Jonathan takes his spear and he puts it up and he gets some, some honey on that and, and he uh, has, a, has a little bit of that honey and it says that his face brightened and he felt pretty good until one of his comrades touched him on the shoulder and said, uh-oh. He said, you shouldn't have done that. There's a reason why none of us have done that and that's because your father put us all under an oath that none of us were allowed to do that. None of us were allowed to eat anything today at all. And Jonathan publicly here calls out his father and says, my father has troubled the land. My father has troubled the people. What my father has done here is not good. How much better would it have been if you would have eaten this day? How much greater would the slaughter have been? In fact, what my father has done is actually hurt the mission of God. It's actually hurt the people of God. It's actually allowed the enemies of God to go free. And so after this happens, we read about the end of this story, and it gets even worse from here. After the sun goes down and the men of Israel have been released from their oath and they're allowed to eat again, they're so hungry and they just don't want to wait and they're in such a panic to eat that they don't cook the food properly and they start to eat this meat that still has the blood in it, which was against the law of God. And so essentially Saul's foolish oath more or less has ushered his soldiers right in to a sinful situation. And we can still be guilty of that today. Sometimes our sin 
Sometimes even a similar sin to what we read about here, the sin of heaping rules on people that really aren't found in the Word of God can cause other people to fall into sin around us. That's what happened here. And then after this, Saul decides that he wants to go out into battle. He wants to have a mop-up operation here all night long of the Philistines. And so he stops to ask the Lord because he feels like that's what he should do whether or not he should go into battle, and he asks for a yes or no answer, and the Lord doesn't give him either one. He doesn't get any answer at all. And so Saul thinks, well, somebody must have sinned here. That's why God is not answering me. And, you know, you, you might have thought that maybe he was the one who had sinned, and his sin that he had not, still not repented of from the last chapter in the last part of this story. But he assumes somebody has sinned here, and so let's cast lots, let's figure out who it is. And then he makes the second foolish oath that he makes in this chapter, where even before he knows who did it, even before he knows how serious it was what they did, he said, whoever is guilty, he's going to die, even if it's Jonathan, my son. Now, it's interesting that he used Jonathan as the example, right? Because that's who it ended up being. I wish we had time to go to Judges 11 and read the story of Jephthah, who makes a similar rash vow that ends up costing his daughters life. Saul walks in the same foolish ways here in this story. And so they end up drawing lots, and the lot ends up falling on Jonathan. And then Saul actually intends to carry out his oath. He takes another oath. He says, you shall, Lord, so help me, as long as I live, you shall surely die, Jonathan. He's all about taking oaths in this chapter. But then his own men, his own soldiers stand up to him. And they say, shall Jonathan die? The one who has saved us today? The one who has shown such great faith in God today? And then his own men, they take their own oath. They say, no, as the Lord lives, he's not going to (laughs) die. As the Lord lives, King Saul, you're not going to touch a hair on his head. This was essentially a vote of no confidence in their king. They were saying, we're going to follow you. We'll do what you say. And notice how apathetic they are, right? Every time Saul asks them something, they say, do whatever seems good to you. Right? Do you notice the difference between that and what the armor bearer says to Joshua? Let's go on, Joshua. I'm with you, heart and soul. They say, just do whatever seems good to you, King Saul. And here they say, you know, King Saul, we'll go with you up to a point, but we're not going to go with you that far. Because what you're about to do is not right. It's sad to see King Saul, who had such a good beginning, sink lower and lower and lower. His bad characteristics are coming out more and more, and that's going to happen even more as his story continues in the book of Samuel. Because really what's driving Saul at this point is not faith. It's not not the faith that drove his son Jonathan. What's driving King Saul is fear. He is living out a fear-filled, fear-based religion. And so really quickly here, I just want to share with you a couple truths about fear-filled religion. Number one, someone, we can see this in Saul, someone can stay far from God and yet become more and more religious. Someone can stay far away from God and yet become more and more religious. You know, you think back to where Saul fell in chapter 13. He fell with regard to religious things, 
right? He was not supposed to offer a sacrifice as the king. Only the priest was supposed to do that. But he got tired of waiting on Samuel, so he went ahead and presumed on God. He went ahead and offered a sacrifice that he was not permitted to offer, so he sinned with regard to religious things. That's why he lost the dynasty. And as one person put it, it's almost like when you get into this chapter, he's trying to make up for that by being more and more religious than he ever was before. Right? And so he's doing all of these, these religious things, right? He's putting his people under a fast, thinking that, well, maybe that'll make God, you know, that'll earn me points with God. It'll be more pleased with us if all my soldiers and myself, we don't eat today. As the story goes on, he sees the people sinning when it comes to eating the meat with the blood. And so he puts a stop to it, and he gets a stone, and he makes them do it the right way. Probably, again, he thinks, I'm, I'm trying so hard to follow the law. I'm doing all these things right. Then, then he makes an altar to the Lord there. And, and again, all of these religious things, and he thinks that somehow by doing this, he's earning favor with God. And yet, in spite of all of these things, his heart is still far away from God as it ever was. And it's possible to be like that today. It's possible today to be very, very religious, to do a lot of external religious things, to go to church, to give a lot of money, to serve, and, and, and to do everything else you can think to do of. And yet your heart is still a long way away from God's heart. Because listen, here's the second truth about fear-filled religion. There is no end to the number of ways you can try to please God on your own but none of them work. Again, Saul, he tries everything here. He tries everything that he can think of. He knows that God isn't pleased with him because of what he did before, and so he's just doing everything he can think of, right? He's, he, he's fasting. He's making his people fast. He, he, he's stopping them from sinning. He, he's building an altar, and yet in spite of all of that, in verse 37, when he asks the Lord for an answer, the Lord doesn't speak. It's not the last time that the Lord would refuse to answer King Saul. When he asked him a question. Now, we know that, yes, technically God reveals that Jonathan had broken Saul's oath. But ultimately, the reason why God is not answering Saul and why it seems like God is a long way away from Saul is because Saul is a long way away from God. And Saul is trying a man-made religion to please God on his own, and he's getting increasingly frustrated because none of it is working. Some of it may look good, but none of it is really working. And friends, it's the same with us because God has not changed. He's the same today as he was then. You cannot buy God off by being super religious. You can't make enough vows to earn God's favor. You can't go to church enough. You can't go to mass enough. You can't put enough money into the offering plate where God says, oh, wow, I didn't know you were going to give that. Well, now, you know, I, I guess I probably better save this person because of this gift. Right? That we, sometimes we think that's how it works. That's not how it works, right? None of our own efforts work. We need to know what King Saul cannot figure out, that we cannot please God on our own. The truth is, number three, there's only one escape from fear-filled religion, but it's the one thing that many people will not do. You know, if you think about it, what had Saul done? He had sinned against the Lord. Well, a little bit later in this book, we're going to read about King David. Does he sin against the Lord? Yes, he does, arguably in bigger ways than Saul does here. And yet, what does, Saul, what does David do differently than what Saul does? After David's sin against the Lord, he repents. 
He calls his sin what it is. He comes to God. He confesses his sin. He repents of his sin. He asks God to forgive him of his sin. And and, and if you think about it, Saul could have done that at any point along the way in this story. And yet until his dying day, he never does. It's the one thing he will not do. He won't simply come to God and admit that he is a sinner and admit that he needs forgiveness. He will not humble himself in order to do that. And yet what God wanted Saul to do back then is what God still wants all of us to do today. It's just to come before him broken over our sin, confessing our sin, and putting all of our faith in his son Jesus who died for our sin and paid for our sin at the cross. It's the one thing we must do in order to receive his forgiveness and his salvation. And yet, the only thing keeping Saul from doing it was the hardness of his heart. And friend, what is keeping you? If you've never done that, what is keeping you today from turning from your sin and turning to God in real faith? We've seen two pictures. We've seen the faith-filled champ. We've seen the fear-filled chump. But before we're through, we need to see the love-filled Christ. Because again, every story in the Word of God was designed to point our hearts to Jesus, and this story is no exception. As I said, I think verse 6 is really the key verse in this chapter where Jonathan says to his armor bearer, nothing prevents the Lord, nothing holds the Lord back from saving by many or saving by a few. And yet here is the truth that we see at the very heart of the message of the Bible. God has not saved us by many or by few but by one. And every hero in the Bible, whether it be Moses or Samson or Jonathan here or King David, they were all designed to point our attention to the one man, the God-man who is fully God and fully man, who went to the cross for us, who suffered and died to pay for our sin and rose again as we celebrated last week on Easter Sunday in order that we could have a relationship with the Lord and I see a picture of that even at the end of chapter 14 where the, where the men, the soldiers, they step up and they stand up to King Saul and they rescue Jonathan, his son. Look at what they say in verse 45. The people said to Saul, Shall Jonathan die who has accomplished this great deliverance in Israel? Certainly not. As the Lord lives, not one hair of his head shall fall to the ground for he has worked with God this day, so the people rescued Jonathan. The word there actually means they ransomed Jonathan. And he did not die. Wow. On the day that Jesus died, the Bible teaches us that he ransomed us. That he set us free through his death. And so really, here's another way to say that. They saved their their Savior that day from dying, but our Savior saved us by dying. Right? They saved Jonathan from dying, but Jesus saved us by dying because on that cross he accomplished what we could never do. He paid for all of our sin. He took it out of the way and now there's nothing left for us to do. We don't have to earn our salvation because our salvation is too priceless to be earned. But we come to the Lord and we do the one thing that he has called us to do to receive that gift of salvation. And really that one thing is just to turn from our sin and turn to Jesus Christ with real faith. Church, I want to ask you to stand with me if you would. And I want to invite you right now 
all across this room, I want to invite you to take that step of faith right now to stop trying and trying like Saul to do all these religious things to get God somehow to be pleased with you, but instead to come and to put your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ to believe that he has already done everything that was needed to be done. And that any, any of us, any one of us in this room can be saved today. No matter what we have done in the past, no matter how big our sin seems to us, that Jesus has already paid for it and you can receive that gift. And that's what it is, a gift. You don't work for a gift. You open up your hands and you receive it. And if God's calling you today to receive that gift, I want to invite you right now as we begin singing to come. Speak with me or one of the other pastors that's here at the front and say, I want to receive that gift today of believing in Jesus. You know, earlier I challenged us to, to be like Jonathan, to step out in bold faith. And I don't know where God might be calling you as a believer to do that. But I believe in this room there might be some here who have put their faith in Jesus, but you've never stepped out just with that first step of obedience, that first step of faith, which the Bible says is baptism. Because when we're baptized, that's what we're saying. We're saying, I'm not ashamed of my faith. I'm I, I'm. I'm not ashamed of anything because he's taken all my shame away. And I've died with Christ. I've been buried with Christ. And I have risen again to a new life. And I want the world to know about it. And you know, this afternoon at the beach, there's an opportunity for you to be baptized if you've never been baptized before. If you know Christ, but you haven't taken that step to be baptized, you can come right now. Share that with me or one of our decision counselors. We'd love to talk with you about how that can happen in your life. That step of faith today. You come right now as we sing together. 